0: Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and today's guest is poet Leslie Singh, author of Mountains Belong to the People Who Love Them. Leslie, welcome.
1: Maggie, thank you so much for taking an interest in my work.
0: Now, Mountains Belong to the People Who Love Them, it's two separate books really that you've brought together into a single volume. Tell me a little bit about the process of pulling the two into a single book. How did that come about for you?
1: That did come about because I did uh, write the Korean section of the book, which was about a journey in the mountains of South Korea in 2002, uh, several years ago, and that went out of print. So when I was faced with the prospect of bringing it into print again, I thought, why not add the Australian journey to it? Because there's so much in common, mother and son are going on the journey. It's in the beautiful natural world. There are Buddhist influences, and uh, I hope it works.
0: So, it, I think it works for me. And uh, certainly, there are some um, some parallels between the two sections, which I suppose really only by putting the two together you you get that parallel. I mean, uh, you know, they, they, by the very act of bringing those two things together, causes the readers to start thinking about the parallels between them.
1: Yes, I hope it is like that. I don't like force-feeding my readers. I like readers to have a lot of space, a lot of time to ponder what's relevant for them. And I guess one of the things that I hope is relevant for some people is just to notice that in in 10 years we all change a lot. So I've changed and, and my son, who was on both journeys, has changed. He went from a 12-year-old to a 21-year-old. And uh, I thought it would be interesting for people to think about how Life is like that it is such a journey it's not just a journey of a week or a couple of months it's a very very long journey it's full of all sorts of interesting twists and turns and reflections
0: mm. and I, I love some of the things that happened with Declan as well and we'll talk about that in a minute but let's start with the the korean section so while you were actually there did you write those poems consciously through the period were you were you thinking of a collection as you were there while you were writing or well,
1: Actually, I was not thinking of a collection at all. I had a small diary that I took with me. And because every space was very small, I just thought I'd try to condense what had happened in a day into something that would fit that small space. And so a haiku-type poem just came to mind. And it was really only when I went back to Australia that I looked through it and I thought, my goodness, I've I've written a book without even intending to.
0: And and had you taken the photos as well while you were there thinking of uh, it? Again,
1: not thinking of a book at all, just thinking, wow, this is a beautiful pine tree or this is a beautiful rock or something like that.
0: Mm.
1: So yes, the book was really serendipitous.
0: (laughs) It is. And, And I love the idea of having a small space to write in and therefore writing small poems.
1: Yes, and I did also have a, a journal, uh but I just used to keep a sort of daily run about that, you know. Things like the, the frustrations of trying to teach English and uh the frustrations of um just being in a different culture at times and the and the delights of the day where I needed more space I did write a longer record. So I did use some excerpts from that uh and and add them to to that collection. And that collection was just simply called Mountains Belong to the People Who Love Them. Um, I think it was just called Journey in South Korea. So, as I said, it went out of print, so I thought it was too good to, to just let disappear. I, want, I wanted people to continue to share that journey while I'm alive, at least. I thought I should shepherd it through into another form.
0: Mm. And, and one of the things that does bring both sections together for me is this notion of self-discovery through imbibing another culture so how we find out about ourselves by immersing ourselves in another culture
1: that's very true and i think that's why people love traveling so much i certainly love traveling Hmm. it is continually rewarding to think this is how human beings can be we're not rigid we're not fixed we have so many choices we can invent ourselves we can let our minds Relax and open up every single day, and people do that quite naturally when they 're travelling. but I think it's good to think about doing it all the time.
0: Mm, the notion of life as a journey,
1: <laughs> yes, but also opening up and being in the present moment, I think it is easier when you 're travelling, but I think it is uh, useful every day, every minute
0: mm. so one of uh, one of the longer poems in the book um strikes me as, uh, at least in the first part of the book, strikes me as um, exploring that notion. To Young Chiam, that's page 12. Would you read us that?
1: Sure, page 12.
0: And feel free to correct my pronunciation if it's wrong.
1: Well, mine not may not be that much better because I never did become very good at um, at anything except very basic Korean, but I think it is pretty close to it, Maggie. To Young Chiam. A Buddhist play further up doing child. Assistant, the sun is out with no class this afternoon. Why wait? A hand-drawn map, a bottle of water, and off. Pigs in a sty, barking dogs. Clouds upside down in paddies, spiked through by a rice shoot. Oh, oh, oh. What can any new poet say about the beauty of spring rice? Trudge, trudge. Combining north and south, there are 70 million people in Korea. Not one of them available to point the way. Only a black-tailed squirrel in an oak on the road to Jung-Ti-Am. It's perched on the mountain's cusp. A decline delivers us. A monk in grey, standing in front of his bright and gaudy temple, barely registers surprise a lone, foreign woman and her son without so much as an offering. Oh phenomena arising. Nothing more. I try Australia. It draws a blank, and I haven't let yearn- learned to say we are from Hoju. I see him grasping for welcome. Defeated, we all smile sweetly at each other. Then, back we go. Where am I, son of mine? This temple this mountain, a job that requires me for only 10 hours a week, no housework, has the world of suffering forgotten me for once?
0: Sometimes I wish the world of suffering would forget me as well.
1: (laughs) It's wonderful when it does, isn't it?
0: Yes, and I I guess that that really does sum up, too, um, I guess, the notion of the pilgrimage that both books take, this um, notion of kind of just leaving behind all those day-to-day distractions so we can just focus a little bit.
1: Yes, because it is true. It's not just a world of suffering. It is a world of distractions. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those things that distract us are so unimportant you know, the whole consumer society we live in and, and, and the shallowness of so many relationships that we have, so many uh, interactions that are, you know, unmemorable. And and I guess it is both the world of suffering and the world of distractions that can be forgotten. It's mm. a great advantage.
0: <laughs> it is. And I also one of the things that I found quite interesting, and I guess this is just the natural serendipity of putting those two sections together, is, again, this notion of a stranger... In a strange land, and um, how in Korea, of course, you were you were from Hoju, you know, you were Australian, but in Australia, you also were a stranger in a strange land, weren't you?
1: Well, I think this is the dilemma of white settler societies anywhere. I think it takes a lot of effort for white settlers to to really integrate themselves into the the land in which they decided to come, and yes, the indigenous um, uh, culture really does interest me a lot, and it's something I can learn so much from and it It just really did present itself in that second part of of the book that journey that i'm I write about in eastern Australia uh, that you're constantly thinking indigenous people survived here you know for forty thousand years with the with the most basic of um, of things, and yet their culture flourished, and it is a really inspiring thing.
0: Mm. and I guess coming to terms with it I mean it, it, in the second part of the book and I I'll, I'll get to that a bit more later but um the the gamba people you you felt their presence where you were and, and they were there in you know in person as well but uh, almost a kind of ghostly presence for the you know the tribe that was
1: yes but of course the tribe still is um it is you know the Yugambe people are the people of that famous strip the gold coast uh, they used to travel from the Gold Coast right up into those mountains of the hinterland. And, uh, you know, they still are, of course. And, um, you know, it's it's just uh, wonderful that the Queensland government forfeit to integrate some indigenous knowledge in its signposting. So it was a lot easier for me as a walker through the forest of the Great Walk uh, to actually see, ah, this is the Yugambeh cave and people were... Oh, sorry, the Yugambeh's um, Kobani cave. And this is where Yugambeh people sheltered for many, many times as they made these journeys. So I'm really grateful to the Queensland government for, for taking the time to, to consult the Yugambeh elders and to get some of the Yugambeh knowledge, uh, even in that small way, available for us as, as walkers. It was just wonderful.
0: Mm. And in quite a different world from the rest of the Gold Coast as well, isn't it? Oh, for sure. <laughs> but I, I felt that kind of peacemaking sense, you know, to coming to terms with maybe what was a, a violent and, you know, fairly guilt-ridden past as well. Yes, um, I think it is important
1: to go beyond a sense of guilt. Uh, a sense of guilt is, is immobilizing. And I think the challenge for white people and Indigenous cultures is to create something new and there are lots of new new things i mean we're we're both adaptive kind of cultures and it is important to to find something new I've certainly found within the Buddhist philosophy some real connections with indigenous Australian um, philosophy uh, the sense of interconnectedness for example is very strong in both philosophies and also uh, you know uh, a real um, observance, uh, what in the Buddhist tradition is called um, mindfulness, but uh, Indigenous people are so well known for very careful observation that allowed them to live with with all the um, elements and mm. and to thrive.
0: Yes, it sounds like there's another book in there. <laughs> so. One common thread in the book, and and we started talking about this, which I I really enjoyed as a mother watching the transition, was um, the growth of Declan and how he moves from a boy in the Korean section to a man in the Australian section. It's almost like a subtext story between the two parts. Talk to me a little bit more about Declan and his role.
1: Yes, it is is, um, a subtext. Uh, There are lots of things that go on in the background, of life, aren't there? You you know, you might be making a certain journey, but really all sorts of other things are happening. Well, you know, between 12 and and 21, uh, there's bound to be a lot of difference. And I must say, it is wonderful to uh, have a friendship with my son. He's not just a son. uh, He's not just a mother-son relationship. We are good, good mates. And perhaps a lot of that is to do with the fact that we have spent a lot of time together I I mean he's just one of I think there's a million Australian children who don't live with two parents and he has spent a lot of time with me his father has now passed away but uh that we were just um divorced at the time when Declan and I went to Korea so we just did spend a lot of time together and you see so many um sort of examples of where it's it's difficult for parents and especially mothers and and, uh, only children or being an only parent. And there are so many times when I want to say, look, it can actually be a really productive and beautiful experience. Uh, It's the one that's presented to you. It might not be the first choice, but um, it's the one you're in. So make make it really special, make it really good. And uh, that's why I think I like to share the fact that there, there can be really good relationships with your children, even if you are alone and it isn't easy.
0: And it, it strikes me only now, actually, that that, that um, the the loss of the sort of father figure is a common common theme between the two books, with the divorce in the first one and then the the death that he's coming to terms with in the second one.
1: Yes. Well, of course, I have. Um, I often felt quite bitter and and angry about various things, but I wanted to write something where that anger and that bitterness was not present and I, I, and by quite consciously trying to focus on the positive, um, you know, obviously my life became a lot happier because if you're angry and bitter, you're not going to be happy too, so <laughs> you really got a choice. You have to often let go of, of those emotions that um, do nothing for you, do nothing to help the situation you're in.
0: Yes, and, uh, and I suppose humour too, which is, a, I think it's um, quite a subtle but powerful underlying theme through both of the books as well.
1: Yes, I think it is important to, to laugh. Um, I still think it's a fairly serious kind of book, so I definitely try and make it as funny as possible. <laughs> and, and it just reflects my own kind of quirky sense of humour, I think.
0: So can you read us uh, a book that picks up on both I think both um Declan's growth and also um humor, the after pizza in Jinju with the math teacher O Pilson.
1: Okay. Yes. Uh I'd love to read that one.
0: It's 30. Well,
1: just to explain first of all, uh in the area we were in was called Dunchol, and um it was quite an isolated place. Uh, uh the school we were te- well I was teaching at was really up high in rice seals, and it was a long way from all the major cities. The closest city was Jinju, but that was still about 40 minutes away in, in a bus or a car. So, um, I'll I'll read that poem. After pizza in Jinju with the math teacher, O Pilsen, and those non-existent buses from Wanji, and no friendly farmer's Hyundai in sight, it's goddamn late for a walk up to Inchol without a torch or coat. Into my right ear, my bachelor colleague, Mr. O, pours his broken heart. Every single male teacher I've met in this country has an I'll never love again story in English learnt from pop music. And into my left ear, my son rattles on about how back home he'll open a pizzeria that serves jelly in the salad, like the one in Jinju. And how, by the time he's 21, he'll have a million bucks. Every meter or so, he flicks my arm with his index finger, just for the hell of it. Oh, Pilsen, forget about love. Oh, Declan, shush, look, look at the full moon. A huge roadside boulder these two, sorry, three human backs curved and stretched to drink the sky. O oh moon, who lights the prisms of courts on your grey, marbled back. O oh boulder, O oh moon.
0: Mm. So in this, as well as in many of the other poems in the book, I, I saw an almost natural progression between humour and epiphany.
1: Between what was that?
0: H- humour and, and then epiphany. Oh,
1: yes, yes. Yes, I guess that is um there at times. But not always. But uh mm I mean epiphany is just so, such a wonderful experience, that aha moment. Yes, that sort of right. cutting through you know, the suffering and the the distractions to get to a bit of the essence of what life's really about.
0: Yes, and I suppose that's that's really at the heart of the haiku form, anyway, and and the poems that you've been reading haven't been haiku, but they have that same kind of, um, I guess, in the just in the letting go in the natural world, suddenly discovering something.
1: Mm. Well, the natural world is so extraordinary, and you just have to slow down a bit in order to to really give it a bit of time, a bit of space to enter in, into your head. And it is funny to think that even in the natural world. There can be uh, funny moments, but there they really can be. I mean, can be even even the sight of a little frog jumping up into the air can just make you laugh out loud in the middle of, of a forest. You know the unexpectedness of things.
0: Which brings me to the next poem I want you to read, which is um, after the typhoon.
1: Oh, okay. <laughs> what page is that one? It's forty-eight, and it's uh, it's
0: one that involves a little frog jumping up.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay. I just have to find that poem Um, It's the page 48. After the Typhoon I am higher up Dundro Walking north, exploring By a rushing stream I contemplate rocks How the large become not so large How the not so large become small they in turn become the grains of soil from which the farmer grows rice the hours pass it's dusk. I choose a sturdy staff to press upon the slippery earth my passage down leaves the bruises of footfall and wood someone else has walked this way contemplating these very rocks who a tiny brown toad Skips past on the mud, then rests. I make him leap again. Tiny toad. Up you jump. Aha, as I thought, your belly is red.
0: So I found in that one as well the same kind of that same kind of um humor leading to self revelation, I suppose.
1: Yes. Well, I was uh, really very lucky in that I had learned to meditate before I went to Korea and I spent a lot of time on my own there in semi meditative sort of situations. That was a day I spent alone. I'm not sure what Declan was doing that day, perhaps um, looking at the squirrels in the trees or mucking around in his own way, just as I was. And, uh, yeah, I, I really did experienced some wonderful mind states while I was there, and it was just letting the natural world really work on me. Mm. And in a way, that little so tiny toad, it, it's a kind of um, metaphor for epiphanies in general, I guess, you know, how unexpected and vibrant and um, and enriching an insight can be.
0: Mm. So let's talk a little bit about the second section now, the Eastern Australia, Slow Days on Old Pathways. Um, it's almost, it's, it's quite different. It's not really, it's poetic, but it's not poetry as such. It's more of a life story.
1: Yes, that's true. Uh, I do think it does relate to a form of poetry called haibun, which is a Japanese form. Um, the famous Basho wrote not just the, Um, small haiku that we are all pretty familiar with but also he wrote about a long journey he took in in japan on on a narrow road and that is poetic prose so i didn't try and overdo the idea of it being hyben but that's that's the closest poetic form it would have
0: Mm. And, and why do you feel it's so important? I mean, you, you do a lot of work around life stories like this. Why is it so important to get this stuff down?
1: Hmm. I'm not really sure. It's interesting because it's part of my own change. I used to be a very political person and I really did not have an inner life. I was very focused on right and wrong and everything being needing change and sort of trying to push changes through, make a better world. And I guess in my own life I've discovered that it's really important to open up to the world as it is and uh, to really think carefully about what sort of world you really do want changed into. Because a world where everybody is, um, I think, happier on, on a deeper level is a much more important Aim than than thinking I'm just going to have a world that um for example banishes rich people, you know I think it's really important to think what kind of um of existence really matters so i I guess my own journey has been from um a fairly uh, lacking in an inner life to to having an inner life. And and walking through the natural world is is part of that. I mean, I do write all sorts of other things too. I write lots of short stories. Um, the themes in those are are really quite different. But um, for this particular uh, work, my themes are about slowing down and 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 really uh, reaching out to to the world and learning what it's like to to relate to it without. The usual wanting and desires and and kind of forcing and pushing and bullying that we we often have as a relationship to
0: the mm. world. So on that topic, can you read us how to walk a path? It's page seventy. It's
1: yes.
0: the piece titled.
1: Well, this little, this poem actually echoes a similar one in um in the first section. So would you mind if I read that one?
0: not at all that would be lovely in
1: Korea uh, I was thinking about the writing of poetry one day and this is what I wrote how to write a poem do nothing watch the clouds how to write a book do nothing watch the clouds drink tea go to bed early (coughs) and in the Eastern Australian rainforests, which are very, very different physically from the temperate forests of um, of Korea, this is what I, I wrote. How to walk a path, go slowly, observe. How to walk a mountain, go slowly, observe. Drink chai at sundown, sleep for several nights at the same place.
0: Yes, and I think that both of them pick up and it, it's an interesting parallel. Did, did you do that deliberately? Yes, well the
1: first one, as I said, uh, the Korean poem was just written quite naturally, you know, just not thinking of a book or anything but the the second poem written in, in Eastern, about Eastern Australia was more deliberately written to, to continue that theme of well, how do you walk a path in Australia? You know, how, how, what is the best way to to relate to it? And I guess the message is mm. similar. Um, you know, if we keep trying to force things into place and to sort of uh, fit them into some sort of notion of um, what ought to be that fit, fits in with our society's view of things, then we might miss what's really important. I mean, of course, to really write a book or a poem can often take a lot of effort and a lot of thought uh, and a lot of striving, but I think it for me it's really important that uh, a lot of that uh, writing really does come from the heart, and and not just be an intellectual or straining exercise, or one that's just after say publication, or all the other kind of delusional thoughts that writers can have at times, like fame and fortune and that sort of thing. Mm.
0: For sure. Now, um, you made a YouTube video, which um, I enjoyed very much. Presumably, you were actually filming while you were walking to make that video. It certainly it gives the impression of being on the scene.
1: Yes, uh, not quite how it happened. There was a filmmaker on the on the journey in Eastern Australia, and he and I barely talked because uh, we spent a lot of that journey in silence, and. There were about 30 to 40 people on, on that trip, so you don't get to talk to everybody anyway. But uh, at the end of the time, I I decided that I would shape up that, the Australian journey into some kind of work and that it would complement the South Korean work. So at some point, I um, contacted the filmmaker and asked him if he would cut me some footage that I could um, use when I performed from from that last part, The Australian Journey. Mm
0: -hmm. And so it
1: really developed from there. He could have just simply... um, His name's Alan Hodgett by the way. He lives in Longwich in Queensland. And he could have simply just done what I asked him to do in the beginning, which was just um, show me feet going up and down paths. That's all I actually wanted. But he did so much more than that, and it ended up being quite a collaboration. And so mm. I I then sent him more of the script that I was writing and he and then cut more of the film to that script. And as well as that, uh, I was lucky enough to have a wonderful musician in um, Tasmania who, again, I I don't know, but um, I had enjoyed her music very much on a CD called Out of the Blue. She had been inspired by the forests of Tasmania. And so Lila Melissa is uh very kindly the person who gave me um permission to use some of her music. So it ended up being my words, some music and and visual images. So there's a three-way collaboration in that YouTube
0: clip. Mm, it's wonderful. And even the music seems quite um it seems quite natural <laughs> as if it were playing while you were walking. Oh yes, but it wasn't
1: of course. It's all been done afterwards. <laughs> yes. I'm glad it's got that feeling about it. I I just thought many people um, aren't going to have the opportunity to to walk these mountains. You know, they might live a long way away from them. Just because they're world heritage doesn't mean many people in the world get to go to them. So I'm really, really pleased that the YouTube clip makes it possible for a lot of people to go on that journey.
0: Yes, and and I will embed that into my review so people can, can check that out easily. Um, but I just want to ask, um, did you ever feel, particularly, maybe less so in the Korean one, because that was um, maybe less conscious, but did you ever feel conflict between being in the moment of the or the walk, and the reflectiveness and formation that forms the poetic process?
1: Well, you're quite right, there could be a conflict there. And writers can often feel that by intervening with writing things down, that they're actually distorting the moment. But uh, I did not actually write on that journey more than just a couple of notes. I just wrote immediately afterwards for about four or five weeks. So that's how it came about. So there was not really that conflict because I was just living in the moment. And it was only later that I orchestrated it in a way into a package, a word package. So I didn't feel much conflict there at all.
0: Mm. Well that's good and um, we, we only have a little bit of time left but I, I'd like to hear a little bit more about your project Zing Stories
1: uh, Zing Stories is just my business name for uh, a, a life story consultancy that I I run from time to time I help people like write their life stories so sometimes that involves going and teaching workshops throughout the country and other times it might involve uh, helping somebody who is writing their life story and being their mentor as they go through that process, which might take a year or two, and all sorts of things, actually. So I I try and write, um, in my business sense, just about life, because I think you have to choose what you will do. And life is so broad that I thought that was the best choice. So I, I, I do keep that separate, from my work as as an artist, as as a word artist, my own work uh, is not necessarily going to appear on Zing Stories. Zing Stories is just to help people who who might need my services to find me.
0: But do you feel it? I, I mean, I notice, for example, you go into into organisations, for example, and and do sort of group sessions around. Storytelling, I mean, do you feel, as a culture, we need to recognize the value of poetry and storytelling more as a means for enriching life
1: we do and and a lot of research has been done, particularly in the states, about how beneficial it is for corporations to um, to see themselves as an entity that generates a narrative that generates uh, a, a a transmittable story uh, A lot of work in the states has also been done about how um, valuable it is for people who've experienced trauma to such a sickness or um, mental illness or uh, whatever it might be to to write about it. Um, old people apparently thrive better with um, some help to recapture the key moments of their life as part of their letting go of this life process. I I do find that I'm probably just a bit ahead of the body here in some ways in that um, I I would really love to be doing much more to help clients. But um, if if I'm not getting that kind of work, then I just simply get on with my own projects. And I also am a teacher, so I do high school teaching and I teach English and and history. So I'm kind of busy.
0: (laughs) <laughs> For sure. So well, tell me, if there's any time left at all um, with you uh, to, to work on creative stuff, what else is on the cards? What's what's coming up? What are you excited about that you're working on? Well, I am on?
1: actually working on a full-length memoir because I'm interested in um, family dynamics. I, I didn't come from a particularly happy family. There were all kinds of dynamics in, in my family that... Um, That were challenging including having a sister who became a heroin addict and I have been writing about that because I'd like to share that journey and and that story with other people because that is a very isolating experience and uh, so that's my latest project Maggie but there'll
0: be more, there'll be others. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful, we'll we'll look forward to it. Thanks so much. That's all we have time for today, but thank you very much for joining us, Leslie, and to my listeners. Please join us again in the new year for another episode of the Compulsive Reader Talks. Thanks and bye-bye.